0: Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today.
1: And we're live. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm glad you asked. I am older today. You
0: are. This is. is the official birthday episode.
1: Yes, it is the day of my birth.
0: When we record this episode. Yep. Not when the episode comes out.
1: That's okay. I will already have turned, but it was the day I was birthed.
0: Congratulations on being birthed.
1: Yep, thank you.
0: So it's exciting. Yeah. Right? oh my god
1: we get to talk about waco part two yeah for that's my birthday
0: that's that's my bad i didn't <laughs> i didn't do uh some planning i should have maybe thought ahead and told a story that wasn't horrifying for your birthday but um well, here we are
1: it is what we do yeah hun.
0: yeah i mean this is definitely <laughs> an interesting story um there's a lot of details we have a lot of things to talk about today but uh I think next year for your birthday, one of my gifts to you will be that we will not talk about the mass murder of a cult. How about that?
1: That sounds fair. Okay, good. It's, it, I love when a gift is something that you're not going to do.
0: Well, well just one of them. I, just one of them. <laughs> It won't be my only gift, but one of them will okay. be that we'll leave out, you know, something like this next year.
1: Yeah, I did like your gift. Your gift that you got me was good. Oh, good. Got, Thanks. um... You know, I lived in Seattle for a time, so you got me a picture of Pike's Place Market. Or it was like a drawing? Yeah, it was right? like
0: it's like art. I got you some framed art.
1: Yeah, it's like art.
0: Yeah, we've been wanting more art for uh, our apartment, and yeah. um, you don't really have a ton of uh, art for yourself, and you lived in Seattle, and you wanted to like have more memorabilia, and so I got you some art. I'm glad and, you liked it.
1: Yes, it was a good gift. Yay, I'm so glad you enjoyed you. it. And. thank um, you. Wake waco part two
0: okay yeah give that, it to me. that being said i guess we should just jump right in because we have quite the story for everyone today before we jump in though i did want to give a quick trigger warning there is a discussion of suicide in this story um and also lots of gun violence there is going to be quite a lot of gun violence in this one but that being said let's talk about the siege okay okay tell me about the siege okay so where we left off David Kresh had convinced his followers that he was the Messiah. He was the son of God, and they were the chosen few who were going to follow him into the apocalypse. He had told them that the government was going to roll up in tanks, literally, to their doorstep, and there would be this massive shootout and a big fiery ending. He and all of his followers would go up in flames, and they would be translated instantly, and then come back with him leading God's army. So th- he said this to them before anything had even occurred, which yeah. is extremely strange. I know. In my opinion. It was like he knew. Yeah, it's very weird. The ATF had been called in because the Branch Davidians were in the possession of a number of illegal weapons. They were under the impression that the cult had 40 to 50 machine guns and maybe 100 hand grenades which is why they were opting for a surprise arrival, that way the group wouldn't be able to arm themselves before they got there. And they were going to show up the morning of February 28th to serve that warrant. The ultimate goal was to arrest David Koresh and to seize all of the illegal weapons inside of the compound. That morning around 8am, it was cold and rainy. Parnell McNamara, who was the sheriff of McLennan County at the time, was waiting for word from the ATF that they had secured the compound. There was a lot at stake. There were automatic weapons, explosives, and children involved, so the element of surprise was extremely important for this raid to go effectively and as smoothly as possible. The operation itself was going to be called Operation Trojan Horse. Some agents were calling it Showtime. And some agents wanted to know what would happen if things didn't go as planned. Like, what was their plan B? And the response given to them was just run like hell, which is not great. Very confidence inspiring. Right. The morning of the raid, the local media had been tipped off and they were trying to figure out where this was going to be taking place. At around 8.45 a.m., Steve Snyder, who was a postman, was driving his route when he was stopped by a news person who had gotten lost. And this news person wanted to know if Steve knew where Mount Carmel was and asked if he knew what was going to happen that day because something was about to go down there which is when Steve turned around and immediately went to Mount Carmel to tell David and warn everyone that they were coming to Mount Carmel because Steve was a Branch Davidian. The element of surprise was paramount for the raid to go effectively, and now they had lost it. Undercover ATF agent Rodriguez who we heard about in part one, visited Mount Carmel that morning ahead of the raid. And he said this was one of the only moments in his life where he was truly scared because one of David's followers came into the room and pulled David out of the room and it was clear that something was wrong. And when David came back, everything had changed. And that's when he said, they're coming, Robert, they're coming. Robert was sitting there thinking to himself, stay calm. He said, good luck, Robert. And then Robert stood up, shook his hand and said, good luck, David, and then turned and started walking out. And as he was walking out to his truck, he absolutely thought that they were going to shoot him in the back as he was getting into his truck. But when he finally got into his car, his hands were shaking so hard, but he managed to drive out of there before anything happened. He went back to the ATF and told them that David knew that they were coming and that they should definitely not go in there. But instead of listening to him, the ATF was instructed to kick it into high gear. The mission should have been aborted at that point, because the element of surprise was so important, and now it was gone, but they just moved faster. The ATF didn't know what kind of people they were dealing with. Everyone in there was willing to die for what they believed in. Meanwhile, back at Mount Carmel, the group was waiting and preparing for the end guns were being handed out amongst everyone and there was a heightened sense of don't be in the way as people scrambled around to get ready many of them had multiple weapons that they laid out on the beds in front of them as they laid on the floor to wait it didn't take long before they heard the whir of helicopters off in the distance and saw two long trucks approaching the compound these trucks were full of atf agents As they drove up, they weren't in the best position because the Mount Carmel compound was two stories high and it had a lot of windows. There was a tower in the center of it and they were on higher ground. So the ATF agents were at a very big disadvantage. David instructed everyone to go back to their rooms, be calm and don't do anything stupid. That way he could go down to the door and talk to them. Kathy Schroeder, who still had her children getting dressed in her room, saw about 50 men jumping out of these trucks, dressed all in black, holding guns, and wearing helmets as she heard them approaching their home. David stuck his head out of the door and told them they needed to leave, but they shouted back, we have a search warrant. Clive Davis, one of the Branch Davidians, recalled hearing David call out something along the lines of, wait a minute, there's women and children in here, and then from that moment on, all hell broke loose. The ATF claimed that the Davidians made the first shot, but the Davidians say otherwise. We don't have a solid answer on who started it, but regardless, shots were fired. And this was extremely heavy gunfire, coming in toward the Davidians and going out toward the ATF. There were bullets coming in through the walls. There were screaming, running, members in the house ducking and covering— David grabbed an AR-15 and fired back at the agents along with multiple of his followers from all over the building. They were throwing hand grenades out the windows at the agents. It was like a war zone, and it was raining bullets. Women and children on the second level were huddled together, but bullets were coming in through the walls past the children's heads. One of the women got hit in the thumb and began screaming for help. And at the same time, those news people who had gotten tipped off were there, they were outside the compound. And they had to duck and cover behind a school bus to avoid getting shot themselves. Some ATF agents saw them and started yelling at them, hey, TV men, call for help. So one of them had to sprint from behind the bus back to their news van to call for every available ambulance in the county to come out. But after calling, he found out that they were already there, which is not what you want to (laughs) hear.
1: Wow. I was going to say, call for help. You're the government. Right. You are are the cops going to help you? You're the, yeah. I don't know.
0: You're the guys that are supposed to help, but. Maybe the military, but I mean, you can't call 911. They're the military. I know, but not really. Well, just you wait, because they have a lot of military stuff that's going to come in. I mean, sure, but you're not like actual U.S. military, right? They were like an army. Uh, anyway they were calling they were calling for ambulances that's what they were asking for but when they called they got the response of the ambulances are here so the help is there damn at that point a few atf agents had grabbed a ladder to climb onto the roof and had broken into a window to climb into the second level but as they were on the roof they were still getting shot at and they heard the bullets flying past them A few of the ATF agents got into the compound on the second level and were shooting people down in the hallway on the second level. The Davidians were looking at the situation as self-defense. The ATF had entered their home and were killing them, so they felt like they were under attack. Actually, Wayne Martin, one of the Branch Davidians in Mount Carmel, called 911 and said there were 75 men around their building shooting at them. He begged the operator to tell them that there were women and children in here and to call it off, and that's when Martin passed the phone off to David Koresh. He was apparently very calm, and even began preaching. It was in the middle of a gun battle, and David Koresh was talking theology. David then walked outside. He began firing a machine gun out, and they exchanged fire back at him. David fell. He was shot in the side, and he stumbled back inside the compound. They knew the only way to get this to stop was to start negotiating with David to get a ceasefire. The ATF had men who were bleeding out and dying, and the only way to get to them was if the gunfire stopped. David was upset because he felt like this was the ATF's fault, and the ATF agents involved were also angry and upset because they didn't fully realize what they were up against, And once they lost their element of surprise, many of them felt like they shouldn't have gone in. But they were given orders and they had to follow through with them. So whoever made that call majorly fucked up because the Branch Davidians had millions of rounds of ammunition. Yeah,
1: that's not something that you just go blindly into.
0: Yeah, they did. You're going to die. Right. They told David to hold fire. They'd retrieve their men and then they could start talking. But David wanted to know why that wasn't their, their approach to begin with, and they didn't have an answer for him. Four ATF agents were dead, and 15 others were badly wounded. Some of them had 13 bullet holes in them and were very close to death. Parnell McNamara, who was the sheriff of McLennan County, had been in law enforcement for 23 years at that point, and he had never seen carnage like that before. They had been expecting a few injuries, but it was a bloodbath. They loaded up every ambulance so full, they had to transport some agents on the hoods of cars while people ran next to them or in the trunks of cars. They literally had agents on the hoods of cars.
1: Wow. Of like, not ambulances, just like trucks? Yes. Wow.
0: And they had like four men holding onto them as they like ran with the car. Jesus Christ. Yeah.
1: You don't even have room in the backs of the trucks?
0: I guess not. Wow. And inside Mount Carmel, they were no better off. Six Davidians had been killed, multiple Davidians had been wounded, one of which was David. David had been hit in the wrist and in the side. There was this overwhelming sense of dread at the thought that he may not make it. He was 33 years old, and there was this very strange parallel to Jesus, because he was 33, Jesus, I believe, was 33, he was shot in the side, he was shot in the wrist. Kinda weird. It's a little ooky spooky. It,
1: and then he knew yeah. what was going to happen, too. So Our, a coincidence, <laughs> a little coinkydig.
0: Could you imagine at the end of this, we were like, so now we're Branch Davidians. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so we're starting a new church. <laughs> right. Um, in David's honor.
0: No, no, He was the Messiah. No, let's be clear. <laughs> That's not happening. Come on, noddies. okay let's we're starting a cult let's not be crazy the davidians were terrified because they were unsure what they would do without david how would they know what god wanted them to do without david there the kids were of course scared as well their home was now covered in bullet holes and they had just been through one of the biggest shootouts in american history Kathy Schroeder reminded them why they were there and that the bad people were on the outside and that they needed to stay together. So they spent their night loading machine gun magazines with bullets. You know, just a nice, wholesome child activity. Let's load magazines.
1: This is insane.
0: That night, the news broke that multiple federal agents had been killed at Mount Carmel by a religious cult, and from there, it only grew. And that's when the FBI got involved, because they had principal responsibility in investigating the murder of federal agents. That and because the ATF had been requesting assistance from the FBI since they needed negotiators and their hostage rescue team. That night, the FBI cordoned off the area and had it declared a no-fly zone, and began cutting power lines and telephone lines to seal off Mount Carmel, that way no one could get to them. And around that time, the ATF patched a direct line through to Mount Carmel. Later on that Sunday, the FBI negotiation team and hostage rescue team came in very quickly. They moved into an abandoned farmhouse about a half a mile away from Mount Carmel and designated it Sierra One Alpha. They negotiated with David from the back porch of that house. Then they spent a lot of time in the front bedroom of the home, and they had men on the roof with snipers keeping watch of the compound. When FBI negotiator Byron Sage got on the phone with David for the first time, he asked what he'd like to be called. David Koresh, Koresh, how do you pronounce it? And he very calmly said, Agent Sage, have you ever heard a person die? And he responded, yes, I have. And David said back, then you know how to pronounce my name. Agent Sage asked him what he meant by that. David explained that it's like the last exhalation of breath before a person dies. It's Koresh, which I just thought was kind of creepy. So I wanted to put it in there.
1: That's so unnerving. But do you think that would mean it was definitely a tactic by him to like fuck with him?
0: Maybe. Or he just, you know, was an apocalyptic cult leader.
1: Is creative. Yeah. Gotta give him that.
0: The negotiators asked David if he was planning on committing suicide, and he told them that he was not. But this was important to them because they were worried that he would lead his group into a mass suicide. That was a very big concern. Yeah, had Jonestown happened yet? Yeah. Probably why. Their main priority was getting the children out. They wanted to know what David wanted, and he wanted his word out. They knew he was injured, and they were silently rooting for him to die from his wound, or for him to come out to get medical care, because then it would be game over. They tried to plant in his head that he would get blood poisoning and die if he didn't get medical help for an infection, but that wasn't going to happen anytime soon. But he did agree to start sending out children that were not his in pairs of two. This was hard for members of the cult because, remember, they believed that the law enforcement and the U.S. government was the devil. So it was like sending their kids to be with the devil. So David was actually getting pushback from the parents. But this was about getting David's word out, so it was his decision. They agreed the kids would come out to the FBI negotiators and immediately be put on the phone. That way, the parents knew exactly where their kids had just gone. I found it very interesting that the the parents were, like, giving pushback, that they didn't want their kids to go out. But also it makes complete sense because nobody is in there against their will. Like, they all want to be in there.
1: Yeah, I was like, it's logical if you believe what they believe.
0: Exactly. So Kathy Schroeder's children were of the children who were sent out. She told them that their life would be difficult but that they had to go out there and live in the Babylonian society and try to hold on to what they learned and that God would take care of them. And that's what all the children were told, that they just had to hold on to what they had learned. And to the negotiators in the FBI, this was a huge sign of progress. They had a room set up with candy for the kids, and they were arguing over who got what candy bar, the officers were stunned by this because these kids had just gone through one of the worst police shootouts in history and they were acting as if they had just gotten off a ride at the fair. So these kids were pretty unfazed by all of what they had just been through. But you have to remember they were training for this.
1: Yeah, I mean they have been warned about this for what, years? At least months.
0: You know, for some of them their entire lives. Yeah. Cuz most of a lot of them were born at Mount Carmel.
1: God, what a What a crazy experience that you only know this place.
0: Yeah. The agents took videotapes of the children playing and having fun at the Methodist children's home they were being held at to send back to Mount Carmel for agreeing to work with them. But their ulterior motive was that these videos would get back to the parents and tug on their heartstrings, which would hopefully get some of these parents out as well. According to Kathy Schroeder, she needed to do what God told her to do, not what she felt a mother should do. She didn't care about dying. She wanted to be there. But because they got children out on the first and second day, the FBI felt like they were moving toward a peaceful resolution. They had gotten a total of 18 children and two women to be released through negotiations, But the FBI hostage rescue team, or the HRT, was now on the ground, and one of the biggest downfalls of the operation was the failure of communication between the HRT and the negotiators. But we'll get into that more later. Now we're on day three. David told the negotiators that he had a 58-minute pre-recorded sermon about himself and his message, and if they could get that played on the Christian broadcast network, that he and his followers would come out after it got aired. And that seemed like a pretty easy task. So while the tape was being played over the air, they closed off the roads to the press, while the FBI moved buses and ambulances out to Mount Carmel to receive the women, children, and men once it was done. And they were very optimistic. They had an entire plan. David would come out first, followed by all the children in rows of two, and then the women, and then the men, and the last out would be Steve Snyder, David's right-hand man. But at around 5 or 6 p.m., David told the FBI that he had been in prayer, and his God told him that they needed to wait. Now, the negotiation team was at a loss, because how do you negotiate with God? God. It was the first indication that David Koresh was a manipulator. Phil Arnold was a student of religious studies and had a PhD in apocalyptic groups. So when he turned on his TV and saw the siege at Mount Carmel, he was stunned. Because all of a sudden, all of the characters in his dissertation were alive and well in Waco, Texas. He knew that the Branch Davidians believed the Book of Revelation was the key to understanding everything. He also knew that according to David, right now, they were in the fifth seal. The fifth seal is a very violent seal where the people of God ask for vengeance. And the last part of the fifth seal says they need to wait for a little while until the rest of the brethren are killed. So Phil Arnold is sitting there knowing that David believes they're in the fifth seal. And he just told them that they need to wait to come out. So he's thinking there's a very real possibility that more people are going to get killed. So Dr. Arnold jumped into his car to drive to Waco, and he finds Bob Ricks, who is the FBI agent in charge, and he introduces himself and asks if there's anything he could do for them. He'd be happy to interpret what David Koresh is saying so that they could resolve this crisis and hopefully save lives. But Bob Ricks had no interest. He told him that it was all Bible babble. You can't understand it. It means nothing. And he turned him away. Wow. And I think this was one of the biggest problems the FBI had. Arrogance? Yeah. They didn't even try to understand the Davidians. They decided that they were all crazy people. And that was that. They didn't understand that the Davidians were willing to die for what they believed in. So here comes Phil Arnold being like, "Hey, I can help you convince these people to leave, like to come out." And Bob Bricks was just like, "Eh, we're good. We don't need your help."
1: You are clearly in over your head.
0: Yeah, that's an understatement. They were just doing so many things wrong. There were so many things done wrong. It was just like a gigantic train wreck that was just like so many trains piling up on each other you know just a continuous and the, train wreck
1: the one coming in this guy's like hey maybe put on the brakes
0: no it'll be fine right let's speed just speed up. let's just speed up the fbi believed that david koresh was unwilling to come to a peaceful resolution and would justify his actions with convenient scripture because he was the king and didn't want to give it up but the branch davidians believed that this was all prophesized. The FBI and the ATF wanted to keep eyes on Mount Carmel to make sure no one left the compound. But from Sierra One, they only had a view of the front. They saw that there was a garage at the back of the building that if they could get to, they could watch the whole perimeter. But to do that, they would have to go by the building that they just had an insane gunfight with. So they went in with these Bradley fighting vehicles, which were tanks, But they knew that the Davidians had 50 caliber assault rifles, which could shoot right through these armored vehicles. They could shoot right through tanks, which I didn't know existed. (laughs) I guess that's naive of me, but 50 caliber weapons can shoot through tanks. And the Davidians had them. And it would turn any person it hit basically into a milkshake. So it was a very big gamble to like drive past this compound, but they had to do it. So they did it very fast.
1: <laughs> Who are the guys getting in this?
0: FBI agents?
1: Wow, Pop- I mean, you got to be brave and maybe and maybe a little stupid. I don't know,
0: yeah, I think they all just settle mean if the prayer. Or, if you
1: get the order, you're going. yeah, I right? think it was
0: the probably a little bit of the hrt agents yeah. FBI I don't know. The Davidians had night vision and could see when any agents were coming up toward their compound. And this was a problem because... (laughs) What?
1: And this was a problem.
0: This was a problem because the negotiator talking to David didn't know that there were men on the ground approaching. HRT would be running some kind of operation that the negotiation team didn't know about. And David could see them with the night vision and he was pissed. Well, yeah. And the negotiator was pissed because he didn't know what was going on either. It was an absolute mess. The negotiation team was trying to make progress by building trust, but every time HRT would do something like that, and then they would lose their trust and their rapport that they had been building. And this was a huge problem because if they entered the building at that point, the Davidians were prepared to commit mass suicide. Kathy Schroeder had an actual grenade handed to her because she was the one woman who could have pulled the pin and killed the five women in the room with her. She didn't have a problem with it either because she felt like she wasn't a person. She said she felt like God's tool. So they were that worked up and upset at that point that they were screaming over the phone with the negotiators. Like if you don't get them to to back down, we will do it right now. And the and the negotiators were like, we don't know what's going on.
1: It's kind of amazing. Did they really just not respect the negotiating team?
0: Neither of them were in communication with each other. And and yes and to answer your question, pretty much yes. The HRT didn't respect the negotiators and like the negotiators weren't in agreement, like didn't agree with the HRT. Like they both thought that they were doing the right thing.
1: Yeah, that's a problem. Right. It was And they're both the FBI?
0: Yes. And they both had the same boss, which was, like, crazy.
1: Who's the boss?
0: We'll talk about him in a little bit,
1: very briefly, but... I mean, dude, this is like Management 101. Have your teams
0: communicate. Right? You'd think. So the men coming toward the compound were the FBI's hostage rescue team who were getting as close as they could to set a perimeter. They were basically claiming the land and were not coming in, but the negotiation team didn't know what they were doing. And they had David on the line with them screaming about how they would all kill themselves. The negotiators wanted to cool off the temperature and get things resolved through talking and establishing a relationship with David and his followers, but the hostage rescue team were only action, and they were really were not working together. But the negotiators had to basically tell David, I understand they're doing things that are making you feel uncomfortable, but that's not my doing. To try and like keep the relationship that they had, even though it was already very bad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hanging on by a thread.
1: Yeah. And as him, how do you believe that?
0: Exactly. And also, how does their word even mean anything to you when you know that the HRT is just going to do whatever they want anyway? Like they have no power, essentially.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's like you're negotiating with somebody who doesn't matter.
0: Right, that's how they felt, and that's what they were saying to the negotiators, and the negotiators were extremely mad.
1: Oh, yeah, I would be livid. I mean, they're going to kill, you know, how many people?
0: There was like almost 100 people in that compound with a lot of children. Yeah. And we're only on day five. Remind me how long? 51. Okay. It speeds up. But like, just, just to put it into perspective, we're on day five. So they were struggling. Yeah, it's bad. It was bad.
1: <laughs> yep, it's bad.
0: It was bad. So day five, it did not seem like David was planning on giving up any soon. Surrounding the area was what was called Circus Hill or Media Hill. There were news vans everywhere. Within a few days, there were thousands of people there for different media outlets. This was the biggest news story in the world there were t-shirt vendors protesters anti-government protests people supporting their freedoms it was a carnival everyone was there sitting around with nothing to do and there were just thousands of people there the atf and the fbi held press conferences every single day because they knew that everything they did would be scrutinized under a microscope They were very concerned about the children. They said David either didn't care about the children or was using them as a shield, which was cowardly. They called David Koresh a crazy thug who interpreted the Bible through the barrel of a gun. But they wouldn't let any news outlets anywhere near Mount Carmel. They only got the FBI's side. The Branch Davidians put a white sheet out the window that said, God help us, we want the press written on it. Early on in negotiations, the negotiation team sent tapes into Mount Carmel of themselves, showing the Davidians who they were, and told them about themselves and their families to disarm them. Because they did that, David Koresh sent back videotapes of his family, his children, a couple of his wives and his followers, and it showed a very diverse group of people, all of which were not being held against their free will. The Davidians made a bunch of these tapes through their time in the siege. And the FBI had these tapes, and they could have released them to the press, but they didn't. It's possible they thought that it would humanize the Davidians, and they did not want to do that. On day six, David told Heather, who was one of the children, that they were going to give her a chance to leave if she wanted to leave. And she was the last of the children that wasn't his biological children left in the compound. And at the time, she was nine years old. She looked at her dad. And he seemed like he was okay with it, because he didn't say anything or cry. So that night, she packed her bag to leave. He gave her some teddy bears, and the next morning, she was pushed out the front door. She walked toward the sirens and police vehicles with her arms raised, terrified they were going to shoot her. After they took her into the military vehicle, they shredded her teddy bears because they believed that they may have been bombs. Heather's mother was Kathy Jones, who was the woman who left the cult in the middle of the night, who we talked about in part one. But she wasn't allowed to see her daughter after she left the compound because they believed she had been brainwashed, so she needed to be deprogrammed, so she was kept in state custody. Heather was the last child to be released from Mount Carmel. She made a total of 21 children to be released But after that, David said that the rest of the kids were his kids and they were not coming out. And that was a bad sign. The morning of day seven, David got into a back and forth with the FBI saying that he had something that could blow their Bradley tanks 50 feet into the air. So the HRT responded by bringing in Abrams tanks, which are the biggest armored vehicles that the United States military has. They're the biggest tanks that the military has. And the HRT lined them up one by one in front of the compound. So try to picture that. Multiple of the biggest tanks that we own in front of this compound in in Waco, Texas.
1: This is insane. I mean, this is a war zone. Yes. (laughs) But there's also media and protesters by it. And then this is not the military.
0: It was a war zone. They had tanks outside, snipers in position, there were nearly 700 agents on the ground, which is probably the largest deployed army against civilians in American history. There's a video of one of David's daughters, and she can't be more than six years old. And in this video, David is saying, are there tanks outside? And she says, yeah. And then he says, are you scared? And she says, no. And then he says, what do we do to our enemies? and she says in her little six-year-old voice, destroy them. Wow. Can you believe that? She's a little baby.
1: She's six.
0: She's a little, I don't know how old she is, but she could not be more than six. She's little. Wow. It was, it was very eerie to see. Anyway, March 12th was day 13, and this was a significant day in the siege because they got Kathy Schroeder out, and that was big because she was one of David's, like, main followers, like, Die-hard followers. Kathy's children had been taken out earlier earlier on in the siege, but three of her four children had been taken by her ex-husband, leaving just one of them behind. So he was alone in the group of children who were out of the compound, and she saw a video of her son who was depressed and alone, which got her to come out to be with him. And this was huge because they got to learn a lot about what was happening on the inside. She got to be with her son Brian for about an hour or two and they took Brian away saying that he needed to eat and then they put her in an orange jumpsuit and shipped her off to jail. They literally, they over the phone with with the negotiators, they're like Brian needs you like you'll be with your son because your other kids got taken by your ex like he, lo- he loves you, he needs you, you're his mother and she's like you're right and she came out to be with her son. They gave her her son and then they put her in an orange jumpsuit and sent her off to jail.
1: What are you accomplishing, right? I mean, are you going to get anyone else to come out now?
0: Exactly. The negotiators were pissed because they knew the Davidians were watching the coverage of the people coming out. And they saw Kathy being carted away to jail. So they knew that nobody else would come out if they knew that they were just going to be carted off to jail. It was a terrible move.
1: That was like my knee-jerk reaction. Like it wasn't, I didn't even have a second thought. Like, that's just kind of obvious, no?
0: Yeah, it was a really dumb decision.
1: Like, I'm just having a hard time defending them
0: They <laughs> made any,
1: at, from any angle.
0: They made wrong decision after wrong decision. It was just a train wreck. It was around that time that Bonnie Halderman, David Koresh's mother, hired Dick DeGrin to be David's criminal defense attorney, who was apparently a very good criminal defense attorney. I guess you need the best in the business if you're David Koresh. But he was the first person allowed to speak to David other than the FBI. It was Dick's opinion after speaking to David that he sounded reasonable and actually had an appreciation for the situation that he was in. So if he could convince him that he had a chance of defeating the case, then he would come out and go into court and have a trial. So Dick really thought that he could potentially get the Davidians out of the compound. I want to
1: have hope, but I feel like I know how this is going to be received.
0: Right. So things were still slow moving, but it almost felt like tides had turned and they were thinking of coming out. Which leads us to March 21st, day 22. And this was the biggest, most incredible day. Potentially two dozen more people were set to come out. The negotiators did manage to get seven more people out and it was a huge win. But then, out of nowhere, hostage and rescue team in their big tanks ran over David's antique Ford Ranchero, his car, his like prized possession. It was like a blatant in-your-face, fuck you. And they crushed a few other cars as well that belonged to the Davidians. And they didn't consult anyone if they should do that. And the negotiators were like, why now are you choosing to do this when we're having like a major breakthrough with the Davidians? Why are you crushing their belongings? And the Davidians were of course upset that they were destroying their personal property. And that was one of the hardest days because their plan was working. And David even said so. The negotiators tried to say, we can work this out. But David was like, you can't do anything. That really solidified to David that the negotiators had no power. And at that point, they didn't even want to talk to the negotiators because they clearly had no say in what happens at all. Any progress was stopped in its tracks right then and there. Were the
1: people in the tank acting off of orders or did they just do that?
0: Yeah, so they were acting off of orders.
1: Who the fuck ordered that?
0: So one of the negotiators went to Jeff Jamar, who was the decision maker for both groups the negotiators and HRT. But he said that it wasn't enough. They weren't moving fast enough, meaning the negotiators weren't moving fast enough. So he wanted to punish them and punish them. (laughs) And meaning he wanted to punish the Davidians and punish them they did because that night the HRT put gigantic speakers up to drive them crazy. They played the song, These Boots Were Made for Walk-In, for like 24 hours straight. They played the sounds of rabbits dying, which sounds like women, like screaming, a jet engine taking off, a door being slammed, someone speaking Latin backwards, a phone off the hook sound for about two days straight. All of these sounds were played for like multiple days at a time, continuously, at 130 decibels, like torturous. They also put in huge diesel powered lights that they kept on through the night to interrupt their sleep patterns. And the media was then asking, don't you think these conditions will have negative psychological effects on the children? Because remember, there's children. And their answers were, well, their parents can take them out. So the FBI was like, this is not our fault. Yeah, we're torturing them, but the parents can leave whenever they want. Wow,
1: this is astounding.
0: Yeah. And that's not all. They also cut the Davidians' power, and the only thing they had to eat were MREs, which are also known as Meals Ready to Eat, which apparently tastes like cardboard. And they shut their water tanks off, so they had no running water. They had to collect rainwater when and if it rained, which meant there was no using the bathroom, so everyone had to relieve themselves in buckets. The negotiators at that point were shut out. They didn't want any of this, but there was nothing they could do. And that brings us to day 32. Phil Arnold, who was the Bible scholar, he had received a tip that the FBI was tired of this entire situation and they were going to put an end to it soon, which was bad news because he knew that that meant the Branch Davidians would most likely die. But he then remembered that he had been interviewed on a radio station out of Dallas called the Ron Engelman Show, And Ron had told them that the Branch Davidians usually gathered to listen to his program. So if Phil could get back on the show, he could basically talk directly to David Koresh. But before doing that, he called his associate, Dr. James Tabor, at University of North Carolina at Charlotte because he had also studied apocalyptic groups. And the two of them came up with the idea of suggesting that David write a book and reveal the Seven Seals. And with all of the attention that this was getting in the news, his message would finally get out. And all of this was in hopes that this would lead the Davidians to then come out instead of, you know, dying. And they knew that this was a gamble, but it kind of worked. On April 14th, David Koresh sent out a letter that said, The waiting period is over. I've been told by God that I am to write the message in a book. And when the book is finished, I will come out. So after they went on the radio, David was like, I've been spoken to by God. (laughs) (laughs) I am told I will write a book and the book will have my message.
1: And God was on 98.6. Right. (laughs) (laughs) WCFM.
0: And God spoke to me through the Ron Engelman show.
1: (laughs) That's crazy. I mean, number one, what a crazy, like specific, weird field of study yeah. that they have a phd in uh-huh how many people told them that this will never be useful
0: right in apocalyptic cults
1: when is that when are you ever going to need that but here they are and it worked
0: kind of it worked at the time
1: i'm sure the fbi will find a way to fuck it up in this story yeah oh they do <laughs> oh they do
0: oh they do so now we're at march 29th which is day 30 dick DeGuren, David's lawyer, told the FBI if they wanted this to end without any more violence, he needed to go into the compound to speak with David. And this would be the first time anyone had entered the compound. So this was a big deal, but they reluctantly agreed. But as he was driven up in a tank, the HRT, who was completely decked out in bulletproof vests and gear, asked if he wanted body armor, and he told them no. He wasn't afraid of the Davidians, but he wanted to make sure they, meaning the HRT, knew who he was before he came back out. Because he didn't want to be shot by them.
1: Yeah, so makes sense. He was
0: like, um, don't shoot me, please. The first thing he noticed when he walked into the front door was the smell of sewage and garlic. Inviting. They were treating the wounds of David and the others with holistic methods I guess that included garlic and they had no running water so sewage David told Dick that he had been told by God that it was his mission to write his interpretation of the book of Revelation and he was on his own schedule and he would come out when it was done by day 46 Steve Snyder kept telling the negotiators that as soon as the manuscript is delivered to his lawyer David will come out and everyone else will come out with him But this wasn't the first time David had promised to come out, so they were highly skeptical. They asked Steve Snyder, who was with David all the time, for any kind of time frame on when it would be done, but the answer was always, I don't know. At some point, the FBI had come to that the negotiations weren't going to work, and they were going to have to have some kind of tactical operation. But if they went in like they did last time, a lot of agents would lose their lives. So the other solution was tear gas. To get permission to use tear gas, the FBI went to the Attorney General, Janet Reno, and showed her a case file from former Branch Davidians talking about the sexual abuse of children and how it was still ongoing. They didn't show Janet Reno any of the videos of David and his children and the followers that had been taken and given to the FBI during the standoff because they honestly made David look pretty good. They also allegedly didn't tell Janet about David's plan to come out once his manuscript was written. They only told her that he was crazy and suicidal. People have argued that they intentionally didn't show her the videos or tell her about the plan of exit because it may have swayed her. But others think that they just gave her the facts of the case. I
1: would say that this is rather selective.
0: Right. Either way, she gave them permission to use the tear gas. Which brings us to April 19th, 1993, which was day 51. The FBI made contact with Steve Snyder, David's right-hand man, and told him this was not an assault, so do not fire your weapons, we are not entering your building, but we are in the process of placing tear gas in your building. So then Steve hung up. The plan was to insert the gas and then command them to surrender, but there was a very good chance that they would fight their way out. Steve told everyone to grab their gas masks, and they all started putting them on, but they were too big for the children. Over the speakers, the Davidians heard, This is not an assault. Come out of the building holding nothing. If you fire, fire will be returned. They then drove the tanks into the building, like all over different parts of the building. They were just driving the tanks into different parts of the building, backing up, and then driving it into it, and then backing up. Seeing this on the TV, Dick DeGurin called the lead FBI agent and told him to hold on. He would come right down and tell the Davidians that this was it. They had to come out right now. But they told him that they didn't need him anymore. And they hung up. Wow. Yep. They had enough tear gas to gas them for 48 hours straight. They were just going to keep going until they came out. They started that morning at around 6 a.m. And they expected them to last until around noon that day especially with the tanks demolishing the building bit by bit. Then through the sniper scope, one of the HRT sees flames. The compound was on fire. And then there was a second sight of flames, the opposite direction of the wind, which is when the FBI believed the Davidians were setting these fires. There were three separate fires that seemingly happened at the same time on opposite corners of the building. They also have audio recordings of the Davidians talking about pouring fuel cans and laying down hay and things like that. Most of the surviving Davidians claim it wasn't them who set the fires, but one of the surviving members who was in the building said he heard people talking about pouring fuel and lighting the building on fire, so that kind of settles that. The wind was very strong that day, so the building went up very quickly. And that was very bad, because they had no running water inside the compound at that time, so there was no way for them to put it out. But I guess if they said it, they didn't want it to go out. As the news covered this massive fire, everyone was waiting for the Davidians to come running out. There were still somewhere around 91 of them inside the building at that time. Nine of them did end up making it out of the building through a window, but other than those few who came out with their hands raised, no one else came out. The building was entirely engulfed in flames and black chemical smoke, and after those few made it out of the window, there were huge explosions behind them. Everyone was stunned. It was clear that no one else was coming out of there, and there weren't even fire trucks. They couldn't let the fire trucks in because they were afraid of the weapons inside of the compound that could blow up. The children that were being kept at the children's home in Waco saw Mount Carmel on the TV on fire, and... The women looking after them said, quote, your parents must not have loved you. According to Heather Burson, who was one of the children who was there. Whoa. Isn't that incredibly fucked up? Yeah. What did they do? They're just children. Fucking serious. Anyway, that was just a really fucked up statement. The members who had left the compound days earlier watched the fire on TV and many of them wished that they were there dying with their family. It was a tragedy the entire country got to watch in real time. Finally, there were fire trucks that were let by, but at that point there was nothing left. What was left after the fire was like something out of a war movie from hell. It rained down charred pieces of Bible pages. 1.6 million rounds of rifle ammo were scattered on the ground along with skulls and half-burned bodies. In total, four federal agents and 82 Branch Davidians died, including 28 children. After all was said and done, there was nothing left for the FBI and ATF to do other than clean up their monstrous fuck-up. They had to explain that it was never their intention to have everyone die. They didn't want the fires to happen, but ultimately they blamed it on David. He chose to keep everyone inside, and when the fire started, he kept all those people and children in there. Kathy Jones, who was a former Branch Davidian, said she doesn't blame David Koresh. She blames the government. She said, quote, He taught something, but people had the right to believe or not to believe. They had the right to leave. I left. And an interesting quote I heard was, quote, The FBI consistently pictured David's followers as brainwashed people who had no will. They never realized such deep belief was possible. The Davidians didn't want to leave because they believed they were in the presence of God. We shoot before we understand. That gets us in trouble. I'm kind of of the opinion that everyone sucks here.
1: Yeah. It's like, I mean, he's insane. He's a pedophile. Yeah. And, you know, he's an apocalyptic cult leader. Like, he's not a great person. And everyone who was there chose to be there, chose to arm themselves, chose to shoot back. Right. But I mean, how many times did we kind of like stop and say what is going on here with the FBI? Yeah. It's like, you're not communicating. Every time the negotiators make progress, you fuck it up. It was almost like they were trying to get these people killed or just like wipe away any progress that was made.
0: My thought is that, sure, the illegal weapons thing isn't great right that thing yeah it's not great but i don't know that the answer to this whole thing was going in just guns a immediately yeah i mean i you don't probably
1: know should have reconvened and called the meeting right be like okay what are our options i mean
0: even even the atf members said that once their element of surprise was lost they shouldn't have gone in so yeah. like that was from very beginning was a fuck up like it was already doomed from the start every single point that happened was pretty much a mistake like there were mistakes made in every single thing that happened so the government messed up like every step of the way messed up and i understand that people have the right to believe in like whatever they want to believe in but i do think that it was the responsibility of those adults to protect those children and those children didn't understand the gravity of the situation or couldn't consent to dying for what they believed in, quote-unquote, because it wasn't their beliefs. It was their parents' beliefs. Yeah,
1: I mean, you can't.
0: So, like, I'm of the opinion that everyone sucks here. Like, I I don't know. Like, it's very easy for me to sit here and say, like, don't have a mass suicide, (laughs) you know? Like, I personally, I don't believe that. I don't think that they should have done that. But also, that's not my personal beliefs. So, I don't know. But I do believe that those children should not have died. Yeah, I can say that with one hundred percent certainty.
1: Stand behind that one.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about when when it comes to the adult Branch Davidians because they all wanted to be there and they all chose to die for what they believed in, and like that was their choice, you know. Yeah. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I think the the right calls this was a shit show all around.
0: Yeah, it was just it was just a shit show all around, but I think that it at the end of the day the the children should have been saved. Like
1: I know, it's so heartbreaking. 28. Yeah. It's a lot. Um
0: That's why I'm like, yeah, it it just <laughs> that's the real insanity of it all to me.
1: Yeah. And I was thinking when they first went in, what did they expect to happen? Like what was their expectation or oh, this is what's going to happen if everything goes to plan. Like, do you think you would roll up... They rolled up with tanks, right?
0: The ATF rolled up with two trucks with, like, all of the ATF agents in the back concealed by, like, a tarp, basically. And if all went to plan, then the Branch Davidians wouldn't have known. And...
1: Yeah, yeah, but they had already broken the element of surprise. So I'm asking once that had been broken and they rolled up anyway, what was the expectation of what would happen?
0: I guess they were like, do it quick. like Do what? Be faster than them. I guess they weren't expecting them to have as much. Do you
1: mean be quick as in kill everyone with weapons?
0: I guess I don't have the answer to your question because I don't know. Like That's why the ATF agents that went in were pissed because they're like, we shouldn't have been here in the first place. We should have aborted this mission. And
1: you killed four of your agents that way. Like, who, yeah. who made that call? Like, it's just logically, if you roll up and you know that they have a bunch of illegal weapons and you just come in, like, they're going to shoot you.
0: Yeah, I guess they just weren't prepared for, like, the enormity of it. Yeah. They didn't know how much they actually had. Like, they had a, they had a general idea, but they didn't know the gravity of it. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it would be interesting to know what they thought they had. Well, I
0: I think I said at the beginning, they thought they had around 40 to 50 machine guns and like 100 grenades. Okay. But they didn't know that they, I don't think they knew that they had millions of rounds of ammunition and they didn't know, they didn't know that they had 50 caliber machine guns.
1: Okay. But let, let's stop there. They have a hundred grenades. Right. Let's just say that they only have that. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's they me. have three grenades per agent. Yeah. Then they have 40 to 50 machine guns. Right. That's like a, what? A, a military unit? Yeah. And you would have to assume that they have enough bullets, at least for three magazines. Right. I don't know. They probably got quite a bit. Dude, you're going into a... They've been training too?
0: Like, well, they, they didn't know that part.
1: I guess not, but you're going into the size of like... I don't know. I don't understand military units, but I would imagine that this, if it isn't one, it's close to one. Mm -hmm. What do you, I just don't understand how, if you have 40 fully automatic machine guns, how that goes well for you in any scenario.
0: Yeah. It doesn't sound like it's going to go well. (laughs) It didn't go well.
1: (laughs) I know, but it's just like, I don't know. I guess I want to know who, who, whoever made that call, what they were thinking.
0: Yeah. What was their plan? I agree. Um, I want to be very clear because we cut this or uh, we stopped this portion of the conversation earlier. I don't agree with the Davidians.
1: Hot take from you.
0: It's. I don't think it's a hot take. Um, I just, I realize I said people can believe what they want to believe. And I want to correct that statement because I think there's a limit to that. Of course. Yeah. I generally stand by that statement. As long as your beliefs aren't harming a group of people and in the Davidians case, they were obviously harming these children in that David was making them his wives and abusing them. So there's definitely a limit. Yeah. And also, I definitely do not condone their mass suicide.
1: <laughs> we're coming out against mass suicide.
0: I just wanted to make that so very clear. Okay. If you
1: thought otherwise, we we spelled it out for you. But yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. Um. Alright, so after the siege ended, eight members of the sect were convicted on charges of voluntary manslaughter after using firearms in the commission of a crime, but by 2007, all had been released from prison. Some survivors of the group stayed in the Waco area and remained devout, like Sheila Martin and Clive Doyle, who actually became kind of a spokesperson for the Davidians after everything many of the survivors still consider themselves Davidians and believe that David was the son of God. He is not to blame and will come back in their lifetime.
1: That's crazy. Wow. So how many still are out there and believe?
0: I don't have a number, but more than one, more than one for sure. Yeah. Um, a new group of Davidians have built a chapel on the site of the former compound. The sect, which calls itself Branch, the Lord, our Righteousness, is helmed by former followers of Lois Roden. Um, so that's there. The kids who were sent to the Methodist children's home in Waco had the Texas Department of Human Services begin attempting to find each of the children's closest relatives after everything happened. And there isn't much on where they are now, but one of them I know is a director at a restaurant and is a wife and mother of two children. A few of them have families. Hopefully they're doing well. You know, I mean, they were young enough that like they're hopefully well-adjusted now. Yeah,
1: or could forget about it to some degree.
0: Yes, Um, according to uh, the cinemaholic, Kathy Schroeder currently lives in Tampa, Florida, and is still in contact with her kids. She also had another child in 1999 with a boyfriend and is, and still devouts her time to God. David Thibodeau, who was one of the followers, wrote A Place Called Waco, A Survivor Story, which was used in the creation of the TV show Waco, which we watched on Hulu. Um, it was pretty good.
1: It was good. Yeah. It's a dramatization, though.
0: Yes, a dramatization right. of the story of Waco. It's on Hulu. Um, yeah, I mean, we have, we did, we watched it... Quite a long time ago so i can't really say if how accurate it is at this point but we enjoyed it at the time so
1: yeah i want to say from what i remember it was fairly accurate but yeah it was good and that's why i knew it was gonna happen yeah from that show
0: yeah i mean they used david thibodeau's memoir as like inspiration for the show so it's it's at the very least pretty accurate so um i watched two documentaries for the bulk of the information for both of for both parts um and uh, those were Waco Madman or Messiah on a and And then I also used Waco American Apocalypse on Netflix that actually came out like this week. Like it came out yesterday. Um, but both were very good, just kind of different. So Waco American Apocalypse on Netflix kind of, in my opinion, favors the government side of things. And then Waco Madman or Messiah kind of favors the Davidian side of things. So if you're interested on checking those out, they're both very good. Um, Yeah, but that is the story of the Waco siege and the tragedy of the Branch Davidians and all that stuff. So if you're still here, thanks for holding on, guys. My God.
1: Yeah, that's rough.
0: It was a big story.
1: Big story, and it's just so tragic.
0: Yeah, very interesting, though.
1: The psychology is crazy, just how people get there how they stay there
0: yeah
1: it all boggles the mind
0: yeah they were all so willing listening to them talk about david and their time during the siege and in the compound and just they all truly believed that this was like that he was the son of god and that they were going to die with him and that it was fine and that that was that was what was going to happen and it was all good
1: yeah i mean it's just you can't really arrest people who believe that you know they're not coming in to handcuffs
0: well i mean they were gonna arrest them for the murder of four agents
1: i know but i'm just like if you really believe that the notion that you're gonna come out with your hands up is kind of crazy yeah so i mean the fact that the negotiators had any traction at any point is crazy
0: yeah um i feel like i said most of the things that i wanted to say about it um, do you have anything else you'd like to say?
1: It's just really unfortunate all around.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. Let's move on to our good things. Let's have a bit of a, a palate cleanser. Let's move out of the darkness, shall we? Yeah. Okay. Um, what's your good thing?
1: My good thing is that it is my birthday. Yes, it's your I, birthday. I'm it is so, my birth.
0: so sorry that I did this to you on your birthday.
1: That is okay. <laughs> I do it for the fans.
0: Yeah, so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry um good uh what, what else about your birthday
1: <laughs> yeah it's happening we're doing a little celebration this weekend so yeah i'm excited and yeah i guess i don't really do too many big things for my birthday like really ever so i'm excited to do something this weekend
0: yeah it'll be fun ball
1: out a little bit yeah
0: I don't know. it's gonna be so, really fun
1: yeah what's your good thing
0: my good thing
1: is my birthday
0: is also your birthday of course <laughs> because you are so very important but um also my good thing is that we booked a little trip and I'm really excited about it We're gonna take a little weekend trip outside of LA and I'm really looking forward to it. We're Me gonna too. have a lot of fun yeah we're gonna go on a walk
1: We're gonna get a little bottle of white from oh, Italia a
0: bottle of red
1: no reds a bottle of white mm, yes bottle of white okay And, uh, yeah, we're gonna have a good time.
0: Get a little couples in the Hot rocks. Ooh, hot rock. Maybe. Meditation, yoga. Anyway, I'm very excited for our trip. It's gonna be very fun. Um, but, anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out the bonus episodes that have been released, uh, we have a bunch of them. Check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast if you or anyone you know has a story of survival or a near-death experience that you would like to share with us and, and possibly hear on an upcoming listeners episode send it to know today gmail at gmail.com we have a tiktok that is not today podcast and a twitter that is not today podcast but the t on the end of podcast is a three
1: because that makes sense
0: and just keep breathing yeah yeah